break 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 through break 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 through break You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out, 14th of July, 2022. Very happy to be back with you here on the show And we got plenty for you here on the show, as we always do. Today, we're going to be talking about everything going on, well, some of what's going on, with the midterm elections in the United States and how it reflects and affects the working class. As the summer inches towards its midpoint, the jockeying and odds making around the U.S. midterm elections this fall is increasing. With the United States facing a range of grave crises from inflation to climate change and significant social strife, the question of who will occupy formal positions of authority is a question of great import. But notably, both major parties are offering very little to address the concerns of most of the populace and the most likely outcomes of the election seem to herald continued gridlock in the governing process. There are a few issues to address here. One, of course, is the quote-unquote horse race aspect of the election, or in other words, where things stand in terms of who may win. And another is what that says about the electorate itself. And finally, how all of this will actually impact the various problems and crises confronting the country. Conventional wisdom and history suggest that the president's party usually loses the midterm elections. And for the past few months, that same conventional wisdom has been predicting that the Democrats would get blown out given the generally low opinion the electorate seems to have of the performance of Democratic leadership after two years of their control over Congress and the White House. Yesterday, the New York Times released a poll showing the election was, at this stage, very tight, with four months to go. 41% of those polled wanted the Democrats to remain in control of Congress, and 40% wanted the Republicans in charge. With a margin of error of 4.1%, the Times poll basically shows that the race is in a dead heat. Political news site 538 does an average of just about all the polls out there, and polling averages are generally thought to be more accurate than individual polls. And right now, the 538 polling average has the Republicans at 44.7% and Democrats at 42.8%. Given that most of the polls they are averaging have similar-ish margins of error, this also seems to reflect more or less the dead heat scenario. The most recent Economist YouGov poll, which covers the same time period as the New York Times poll, breaks it down into respondents' preferred outcome for the Senate and the House separately. Their results have Republicans up 36 to 35 in the Senate and 37 to 36 in the House. So again, dead heat territory. These general polls, though, known as quote-unquote generic ballots, only tell you but so much because, of course, people vote for candidates in particular states and congressional districts, and the dynamics of any particular race can be very different from people's general feelings about who should end up in control of Congress. 
Looking state by state in the Senate, where we have much better data than the House races, Democrats actually seem to not be in the worst shape. In Ohio and Pennsylvania, where there are open races due to retiring Republicans, the Democratic candidates have seemingly healthy leads, according to the polls. In Arizona, where Democrat Mark Kelly is running for re-election, he currently also has a decent-sized lead, and the same could be said of Maggie Hassan, the Democratic incumbent in New Hampshire. In Nevada and Georgia, however, incumbent Democrats are holding on to very slim leads, and Wisconsin seems to be a bit of a toss-up. Overall, then, it seems like there's at least a fairly decent chance Democrats will hold the Senate and perhaps even gain a few seats. The House, we really don't have enough great polling out there, but overall trends seem to favor Republicans winning at least a slim majority in the House. So what does all this mean? Well, first off, it probably means way less than all the prognosticators are holding it out to mean. Polling is a very tentative way to judge things. It is, without a doubt, very useful. But given that it tends to capture things in broad categories, it can also obscure things as well. For instance, and as we will parse in just a bit here, how a 19-year-old Latina fast food worker might feel about who should win the election may be very different than their 59-year-old parent who works as a paralegal. They both, however, will be counted in polling by their age group, race, and income. And in any one category, one party or the other might be said to be dominant, even if it clashes with that individual's actual beliefs. So, all things else considered, we should always probably present analysis of polling in a tentative way that recognizes these nuances. The narrative put forward by the Times, put forward softly but clearly, and blared out loudly by Axios in their analysis of the Times data, is that the Democrats are becoming the party of the quote-unquote upper class, and Republicans are, in the words of Axios, quote, building a multiracial working class coalition. However, a review of the Times data and other polling data raises a number of important caveats that, when considered, show that this is a simplistic and, quite frankly, misleading narrative. The Times analysis on so-called class-based voting intentions is based on asking people their education level, and this is actually frequently used as a proxy for class in U.S. electoral analysis. But quite frankly, it is a poor proxy for class. Obviously, one could be a high school dropout, only a high school graduate, someone with quote-unquote some college, as the category is listed, or a bachelor's degree, and still be working class. It's absolutely absurd to argue otherwise. Yet in common parlance used by the Times, having a bachelor's degree means you are quote-unquote not working class. So clearly, this is a deeply flawed statistic. But let's just take it at face value, because even with that, it's not all that clear that the Times analysis shows major inroads by Republicans with working class voters using this education metric. For instance, the Times poll shows that of those they surveyed with a high school diploma or less, 27% want Democrats to control Congress, 46% want Republicans to control Congress, and 27% are undecided or refuse to answer. So, of course, you could in fact say that Republicans are doing well in that core working class demographic. Or you could also say 54% of people with a high school diploma or less are supporting the Democrats or are undecided or not stating their preference. Same stat, but very different conclusions one might draw about Republicans standing in the working class. On top of that, when one looks at the Times data for those who have, quote, some college, which of course includes associate's degrees, and I'd like to think most of us would agree that most people in that situation are working class, or tend to be working class, Republicans are ahead by one point, 43% to 42%, and that's with a 4.1% sampling error. So, one, this would suggest that in this subset of the working class, by the Times terms, the dead heat scenario prevails. And that, in fact, Democrats could perhaps be relatively substantially ahead. There is further the question of who counts as quote-unquote working class. 
The Times only breaks out white people when it seeks to examine class and race together. So it makes statements about what it calls the, quote, white working class, but doesn't provide the same breakdown for the black or Latino population. And data from other places suggests quite clearly that the vast majority of black working class voters, for instance, will support Democrats. Do they not count as, quote unquote, working class? So what does it mean to say that Republicans are, quote, making inroads with the working class if they lose the vast majority of votes in a clear working class constituency or that they are building a multiracial coalition? I mean, people of all races have, as long as they could vote, always voted for both parties. And more likely than not, Democrats will end up winning the vast majority of areas that are majority working class people of color. And even in areas like South Texas, where Republicans are notably, quote unquote, making inroads, all the national pundits say, with Latino working class voters, are also places where Bernie Sanders has performed very well in 2016 and 2020. So what does that really say about the people who live in South Texas? Are they moving in a more conservative direction, a more liberal direction? Are they poorly served by both parties? Really, when you look at how the Times is breaking down the data, it doesn't speak to that. So you can see it's more complicated than the way the Times and other pundits are trying to make it seem. If Democrats, for instance, were to win the vast majority of working class voters in L.A., Phoenix and Houston, for example, does that mean that they have the multiracial working class coalition? Or Republicans, if they win the majority of working class voters in Miami and more rural areas of South Texas? I think you can see where I'm going here. Many of the categorical statements being made about Democrats being the party of the wealthy and Republicans, the working class, are decontextualized and overblown. This is something that's brought into further relief when one looks at the YouGov Economist poll covering the same period as the Times poll, which uses income as the proxy for class, a much better proxy, but one that still gives you sort of a glass half full or half empty sort of picture based on how you want to parse the stats. If we examine those making under $50,000 a year, for instance, when asked who they prefer to control the House of Representatives, Republicans are ahead 36% to 31%. Also, interestingly enough, 22% of people making $50,000 or less said they had no preference, and 11% wanted an even split. So one could, of course, say Republicans are, quote, in the lead with this subset of working class voters. Or you could also say 64% of voters making under $50,000 are supporting the Democrats, have no preference between the parties, or prefer an even split between the two. And that Republicans, in fact, then represent a clear minority of working class voter preferences. Again, same stat, different interpretations. One other interesting fact, in the YouGov poll among Latinos, Republicans are one percentage point ahead of Democrats in terms of preferences for who would control the House, but Republicans are nine percentage points behind in terms of Latino preferences for who controls the Senate. And their support, Republican support, when it comes to the Senate, is actually tied with, quote unquote, no preference. So again, it's not as if the Republicans don't have working class support. They obviously do. It's not as if they don't have support among Latinos. They obviously do. But the actual polling data certainly does not suggest that this is some sort of major inexorable trend that cuts against all the so-called quote-unquote liberal assumptions about race and class. Ultimately, the reality is the working class is riven and divided by a range of different issues and solutions to issues, and saying one party or another is more representative of the working class is a fundamental misunderstanding of how class and class strata work in elections. One other important element the Times pulls out to buttress its points regarding the Democrats being outflanked by Republicans among the working class is the issue of how people describe their, quote, most important issue. 
The Times presents this issue in a very misleading way. They note that their data shows that the majority of people, just over 60% of those who say either, quote, the economy or, quote, inflation is the most important issue, are self-identified Republicans. And note that on a handful of issues traditionally associated with liberals like gun control, the majority of people saying that that was the most important issue are, surprise, surprise, voting for Democrats. The implication being that since Democrats are allegedly the party of wealthier people, in this interpretation, that this reflects the fact that these people care less about the economy because they're well off, which shows working class people are leaning towards the Republicans. Here's where it gets interesting, though. The Times also asked people to rank issues on the basis of whether they are extremely important, somewhat important, and so on down the line. But they don't provide that information for how people feel about the economy and inflation, at least not to the public. Why, you might ask. Hmm, well, it starts to become clear when you look at the YouGov poll that we've been mentioning that does break it out in this way. In that poll, 60% of Democrats rank jobs in the economy as, quote, very important issues, the highest ranking you can give. So you can see how that complicates things. If you're, say, a working class Democrat who, for instance, doesn't think either party is going to do that much on the economy or you feel secure in your job and thus decide to rank gun control as your most important issue because you think Democratic control of Congress might actually mean something moving on that issue, well, by the Times analysis, you just get lumped in as some sort of rich coastal elite. Further, the number one issue among black voters, according to the Times, is quote-unquote civil rights. It's well known that working class voters make up a big chunk of black voters. So then wouldn't that make civil rights a quote unquote working class issue too? Why is just one metric used to define working class support for a political party? So again, the Times analysis and the analysis of those agreeing with it leaves a lot to be desired. And it makes big assumptions that aren't fully supported by the data. As we said before, the data more clearly reflects that the working class is affected by a range of issues and responses to issues, and that this parcels out clear, if substantial, minorities to both parties and means that pluralities and at times majorities move between the parties as well as in and out of voting, period. Which leads me to my final point. Voting in the U.S. is basically a binary choice where a majority of people, as other times polling expresses, 58% to be exact, don't feel well served by either party or the structure of U.S. democracy. So there's also a bit of a misdirection play going on by even assuming people's voting preferences are signs of hard allegiance to either party, as opposed to how they'd vote when forced to choose between two parties that often don't speak to many of their interests. For instance, according to the YouGov poll, 54% of people making under $50,000 want the government to forgive $10,000 in student loan debt. 52% of those making between $50,000 and $100,000 feel the same way. But it doesn't look like either party is actually going to carry that out, even though the Democrats, of course, have promised to. 63% of those making under $50,000 thought the government should negotiate with major drug companies to lower prescription drug prices. 65% of those making between fifty dollars and $100,000. But neither political party is actually going to do that. Both parties have different individuals who at various times have said they support that, but when it actually comes up, never seems to make it. Also worth noting here, at one point last year, 50% of Republicans supported Biden's Build Back Better plan, which would have allowed Medicare to negotiate prescription drugs, make community college free, clear the backlog of repairs in America's public housing, and fix far more roads, bridges, and dams than the so-called bipartisan infrastructure bill will. And that one actually did pass, as opposed to Build Back Better. But again, speaks to the overall issue that when you look at it, wouldn't it be just as logical to say that working class voters are making devil's bargain sort of choices for one of two political parties dominated by the wealthy that doesn't represent their issues very well? 
Well, that's certainly the takeaway I would have from a survey done earlier this year by a Democratic research firm of white working class voters in rural and medium populated counties where manufacturing is the key employment driver, where the majority view of both parties boiled down to the fact that they are either, quote, both too extreme or both get some things wrong and some things right or that both are, quote, corrupt and self-serving, which might be exactly the takeaway one would have. If, for instance, you note that neither party has a plan for inflation other than to tank the economy with interest rate hikes rather than more appropriate windfall profit taxes to make sure the burden of stopping inflation falls on workers, not bosses, and that both parties are equally as happy to continue to exacerbate the inflation problem by ramping up sanctions regimes on Russia and other countries in the interest of imperial hegemony. So to sum it all up, the midterm results right now seem like a toss up and both parties are mobilizing coalitions that cut the working class in different ways. Republicans, however, have invested quite a bit of their messaging energy since 2016 when insisting they're the party of the working class. And despite that not really being true, the media has been mainly swayed by this narrative and seems to be cutting their own analysis to fit preconceived notions, when in reality neither party represents the working class very well or uniformly, and both pursue anti-worker agendas that use various glosses to hide the fact that they are in fact anti-worker agendas. So no matter who wins this fall, you can be for sure. The wealthier section of our society will continue to do much better than everyone else. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York, East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles, Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. <laughs> 